electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. I'm Kelly Evans. You'll be hearing a lot more from me when I'm back in March. But for now, here's today's show. Chamber sounds like the woodshed, Scott. Thanks very much. Welcome to The Exchange, everybody. I'm Tyler at Matheson in today, and here's what's ahead for you. From an SEC investigation to a stock at an all-time high last year uh, has been a wild ride for Tesla. We're going to look at how Elon Musk has staged this dramatic, and I do mean dramatic, turnaround. Plus, it was a year of big gains for the home builders, with many of them up more than 40%. So can this group keep hammering home gains? And Goldman Sachs thinks its stock is undervalued and they've got a new strategy to make Wall Street get on board with it. But we begin with today's markets and Seema Modi with the numbers. Hi, Seema. Hey, good afternoon, Tyler. Three hours left in trade. The Dow was down about 140 points at the low, so we are off the lows. Currently down 107, lower by 7 points for the S&P. Take a look at the Nasdaq, uh, actually higher on the day by around 12 points. What's leading us lower? Industrials, financials, and energy, giving up some of the gains that we've seen over the past two trading days. Take a look at the biggest losers, led lower by Chevron, which is lower by 2% at session lows. Their CEO of the company, Michael Worth, telling CNBC this morning that he's not anticipating higher oil prices because of the tensions with Iran. Bank of America, worth noting, also downgrading the stock today to underperform from neutral. Now, one standout despite the broader losses, take a look at Square, the payment company getting upgraded at B of A. Analysts there say the underperformance in 2019 and its conservative guide for 2020 sets up the company to defy expectations this year. You can see it's up 4% today, still down about 4% over the past three months. Ty? Sima, thank you very much. And we start today with a stock comeback that has taken Wall Street and perhaps many of you by surprise. And it is a company called Tesla. The stock has been on a very wild ride in the past year. and We're going to take a look at it now. Last January, the company announced it would lay off 7% of its staff. In February, the SEC went after Elon Musk for a second time, this time for contempt of court. Two months later, the company settled and agreed to new terms for Musk's tweeting guidelines, and the stock, however, continued to decline, falling below $200 a share. Now, as the stock was starting to recover, the company reported results that missed estimates. And what did it do? It tanked nearly 10%. October, on the other hand, was a month to remember for the bulls. A surprise profit sent the shares soaring, as you see right there. Last month, it delivered the first Tesla made in in its Chinese factory, and today, the stock hits an all-time high. For more on the company's transformation, I'm joined by Tom Tim Higgins, excuse me, Tim from the Wall Street Journal and our own Phil LeBeau. So, Tim, what has Musk and company done right? Well, two things. Elon's really stayed off Twitter in, in, in inappropriate ways. That was a problem he had about a year ago. And the second thing has been execution. He promised to, to deliver 360,000 to 400,000 vehicles last year, and he hit his guidance, the low end of it, but nevertheless, he did. And the third thing, if we're going to throw something else in, is he, he opened that China factory in a remarkably quick way. Phil, their big bet, I hear, over and over again, not big bet, but but. China is really, really important to this company's future and its success. 
It is. And, and I think that they're going to do well in China. Having spent time there for a number of the Shanghai and Beijing auto shows and having gone to talk with Tesla owners in China as they're charging their vehicles or at Tesla galleries, this is a company that has brand appeal in China. And brand appeal is huge in the auto business over there. It's the reason why Buick sales are so strong over there. The Chinese, for years, revered the Buick brand. GM wisely sold a lot of Buicks over there and still sells a lot of Buicks over there. I think Tesla is going to do very well when it comes to electric vehicles in China. Remember, it is the world's largest auto market and the world's largest electric vehicle market, Tyler, and they're getting into that market at the right time. Below 200, Tim, to above 400 uh, in the swing of just a year. Uh, Mr. Musk says that among the most important products for his company is getting the SUV right. Do you agree with that? Yeah, absolutely. That's where the market is, especially in the U.S. and in China. Uh, customers have moved away from sedans. It's a sedan-heavy vehicle uh, 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 company. And so to get into the compact SUV market is going to be huge for, for Tesla. Let's talk a little bit, Phil, about the moment that many people remember from the past year uh, where they were introducing, I believe it was the L.A. Auto Show, you can correct me, uh, when they threw a rock at the window of the uh, Tesla truck, uh, supposedly it was shatterproof glass. It sure. wasn't, not once, but twice. Was this an epic fail or an epic success because it humanized Tesla and brought its name uh, a greater notoriety? I think it was both, Tyler, and, and I think you can be both. Look, they didn't plan on those windows to shatter when they threw the balls at them, not once, but twice. And afterwards, other companies might have scrambled and said, oh, that's terrible. We feel awful about this. He kind of laughed on stage and he said, well, OK, it is what it is. And while there were critics who said this was an example of how you just can't go off the cuff and try to do something like this at an event uh, where you're introducing a vehicle uh, that you need to have it a little bit more staged. Uh, this is what people like about Elon Musk and what they like about Tesla, which is why. It really has gone, it's become something that you don't hear people talk about and say, oh, I would never go near the Cybertruck, the windows broke. I, I haven't heard that once since mm -hmm. then. I've heard people say, yeah, it's kind of funny, and that's about it. Yeah, either you like the truck or you don't like the truck. Either you like right. the idea of an electric vehicle or you don't. Uh, and an awful lot of people do, uh, over the long term, say that the electric is the way it's going to go. Tim, let me turn to China one more time and have you explain to me how the trade tensions between the United States and China have affected Tesla, if at all, vis-a-vis -vis other automakers, and how it might affect Tesla as we look forward. Well, if you talk to China hands who watch, uh, watch the market very closely, they would say that Tesla has been the one big benefactor for this trade war because mm -hmm. Tesla, uh, China has shown a willingness to allow Tesla to go into the country in a way that it hasn't allowed any other foreign automaker. Tesla is the first foreign automaker to own its factory totally 100 percent, which means they don't have a JV, a local JV that they've got to share profit with in the future. So huge win for Tesla there. And, and almost uh, you've seen the government there, especially in Shanghai, really roll out the red carpet for them. He was uh, Phil dancing today. Mr. Musk was uh, reminiscent of uh, performances, not of uh, uh, not of Steve Jobs, who was much more restrained, but certainly of uh, Steve Ballmer uh, at Microsoft. There he is doing a little bit of uh I don't know what they call that, but at any rate, there he is. He's in a good mood in Shanghai, uh, the factory there opening and uh, the company moving forward. U.S. brands other than Tesla last year in China, sales were down, right, Phil? 
Well, the whole market was down, Tyler. Yeah. Okay. It, it wasn't just that it was U.S. brands. Yes, GM, they reported their China sales today. They were down substantially. Ford has been struggling there. Fiat Chrysler's presence is, is limited relative to the other two uh, U.S. automakers in China. But really, the entire market was down, Tyler. And this is a market that has had, I think, 14 or 15 straight months of declining auto sales. Mm-hmm. So you're seeing a, a bit of consolidation taking place there. And you're really going to see the smaller brands. I think they're going to shake out over the next couple of years let me, in let, China. Let me and there sque- are a slew of them. Let me squeeze in two real quick questions about the electric vehicle market. I am going to assume for purposes of argument that Tesla is number one. Who's number two right now and who will be number two in 10 years? Phil, take a whack first and then Tim will close it with you. Well, globally, I would say number two, and I haven't looked at the numbers, I would say globally, number two in 10 years is likely going to be Volkswagen. Now, General Motors will say that they're going to be making a big effort in that area. That's, that would be my guess for 10 years from now. And in terms of who's number two right now, uh, I would say that, I, I'm guessing here, maybe Volkswagen, maybe BMW. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, you have to look at how you measure it, Tyler. There's pure EVs, which right. is what Tesla is, and then there are partial EVs, and that's where you get a lot of the data from around the world. Tim, one word answer, please. Our Tesla's number one right now, and the, the strength that they have is they're a luxury brand. They've created themselves beyond being an electric. Who's going to be number, who's, who's going to be number two in 10 years if they're the luxury brand? Mm. Who's, who's going to rival them? Well, Volkswagen is being very aggressive. GM is being very aggressive. Those are the two to watch, I think. All right. Tim, Phil, thank you very much. We appreciate it. Well, markets don't seem to be phased by much these days. Despite the geopolitical turmoil, stocks are essentially flat over the past four trading days. But maybe it won't be overseas unrest that shakes confidence. Maybe it's a case of overbought conditions. Societe Generale saying today that 61% of S&P 500 stocks are above their 100-day moving average. The relative strength index crossed above 70 last week, a sign that stocks are indeed overbought. Let's discuss it all with Marianne Montaigne from Gradient Investments and Rich Weiss from American Century Investments. Uh, Folks, welcome. Good to have you here. Rich, let me start with you. Uh, Last year, uh, if I'm not mistaken, we don't know obviously what the fourth quarter holds or heralds, but uh, corporate profits were roughly flat. They didn't grow all that much. And yet the S&P was up 32%. That tells me that people were just willing to pay more for each dollar of earnings. Can that condition sustain? No, it can't. Um, Last year was all about P.E. expansion. Uh, The Fed monetary policy switched uh, routes and uh, went on hold with interest rates. And that allowed the P.E. to expand, the multiples to expand. But this year, it's going to be much more about the denominator, the earnings growth rate. And, uh, you know, at best, we're looking at single-digit growth rates by by most of the forecasters out there. And that's not enough to get this market moving further. Arguably, the market got a little bit ahead of itself last year, up 30 percent for the S&P, give or take, on basically flat earnings. You're going to need at least 10 to 15 percent earnings growth this year to get that market moving. And we just don't see it. Marianne, react to what Rich said. And do you see the earnings being there Uh, sufficiently to power the market higher measurably from where it is right now. Well, I do agree with Rich in terms of the valuations, but we're believers that the earnings growth will be higher, closer to 10 percent this year. And so we see the market about 10 percent higher in 2020 than last year. Are there any, uh, Marianne, particular sectors that you would favor or move away from given the macro outlook that you have? 
What we favor is the dividend payers and the dividend growers and some uh, stocks that are now on the value end of things, and that includes the energy sector. So to play it in, on an overall basis, we would use the XLE, which is the Spider ETF. And there we think just simply because the companies have reduced their costs, they've reduced their capital expenditures, they are having strong cash flow, they can grow the dividend growth rate from 3.6% yield now to something greater than that, uh, and probably participate as the uh, price of oil goes up. So from $60, we're, we think mm -hmm. it can probably go to 70 from here. Right. But they've lowered their costs so much that the earnings can grow very nicely. So, Rich, I, I, I assume, I'm assuming, you can correct me if I'm wrong here, that given your outlook, uh, which feels a little bit cautious, that you mightn't disagree with Marianne, who, who says dividend payers, dividend growers are a good place to be, maybe some of the value stocks, but maybe you also like uh, out-of-U.S. stocks. Tell me what, you, what you're buying. Well, we remain overweighted in the U.S. for a number of reasons. You know, we're, again, the, the cleanest shirt in the, the dirty pile, right, in terms of economic growth. Uh, and, and strong interest rates. But with interest rates on hold, uh, we still maintain an overweight in growth stocks vis-a-vis -vis value stocks, to your mm -hmm. question. Mm -hmm. uh, they're longer duration assets, lower dividends. Therefore, with the Fed on hold for the foreseeable future, they represent the better value. With that said, for uh, those in retirement or near retirement, you may want some more downside protection. Equity income funds uh, are very favorable. Uh, if the downside risk outweighs the positives and the upside, we're looking there as well. Internationally, economic growth prospects are very limited. I mean, mm -hmm. we're talking about, what, 1% to 2% at most right. in economic growth. The U.S. has got it beat. Have to leave it there. Rich Weiss, Marion Montaigne, thank you very much. Okay. Appreciate it. Coming up, the home builder sector soared in 2019 with every major player in the space ending higher. Can these companies continue to build gains this year? We will ask the top analysts on the street. Plus, Goldman thinks its stock is undervalued, and they have a plan to try and fix that. And it's not just burgers anymore. Here comes impossible pork. Yes, impossible pork. This is The Exchange on CNBC. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Home builders were hot way back in 2019. The home construction ETF jumped nearly 48% last year, roundly outperforming the broader S&P 500. So do these stocks have the sturdy foundation to keep the momentum going right now in 2020? With us now, CNBC's own Diana Olick and Evercore ISI Senior Managing Director Stephen Kim, head of Evercore's housing research team and institutional investors, top-ranked home building analysts. Folks, welcome. Diana, let me begin with you. How do you explain the blockbuster performance of the brick-and-block guys? 
Well, it's just the hope, the optimism out there. You saw builder sentiment hit a 20-year high last month, and that's because there's just so much demand out there. You have the demographic shift of millennials getting into their home buying years, and you also have this extraordinarily tight supply of existing homes for sale, which, of course, is going to benefit the builders, Tyler. Stephen, one of the things that was interesting in, in the note I received reflecting your thoughts is that home builders, you say, have finally retooled to efficiently produce smaller homes at affordable prices, tapping into a deep pool of pent-up millennial renters uh, and downsizing empty nesters. That's a real change, isn't it? And what companies does it favor, therefore? You're absolutely right. It is a significant change, and I would say that this is something that you don't typically see uh, later in a cycle is a shift to a more affordable product. Uh, typically, later in a cycle is when you would see builders move to a more luxury-oriented product. But this is really, uh, the affordable product is really where we see the shortage right now. And it has to do with a lot of factors. Uh, we've seen uh, a tremendous number of units being converted from ownership into rentals earlier in the cycle. Um, and that, we think, pulled out as many as 4 to 5 million homes uh, out of the market uh, for sale and into the rental market. So there's a real shortage of homes that need to be built so that people can buy them. And that's finally starting to happen. The builders uh, have, as I said in their note, retooled. What that means is that they have found out that they can increase the standardization that they offer in their homes to get more bulk purchasing and also to drive better, more predictable uh, processes for their labor. And that the result of that is that they can, at a pretty decent margin, sell a cheaper home, a smaller home. And that's exactly what these uh, millennials who are coming out of their rental apartments or out of the, their parents' basement are looking to buy. So let me, let me turn to Diana, and then I want to come back to you, Stephen, and get some names here. Is that what you're sensing in the market, Diana? You know, I'm wondering, because I'm listening to Stephen, and I know that he's the top guy on the analyst side, but I hear out on the street that there's just not enough of that new supply coming in on the lower end. And in fact, we saw median home prices of new homes sold in November up 7% year over year. And when you look at the shift of what's selling, it's really in that five to 750 zone. It's not in the 200 to 400,000 range where so many people are out there looking to buy. And I wonder, I know there are big companies like DR Horton that have the Express Home brands and some of the bigger companies have said that they're pivoting, but they also complain that they can't do it fast enough because of high cost for land, labor and materials. So Stephen, I'm wondering if they, you think they're doing it fast enough. So Stephen, address Diana and then, and then tell me if you hold to your thesis, as I assume you do, that the, that the lower price home builders are going to thrive and have been able to solve some of the fundamental problems there, who are the winners? Well, we've got a shortage situation. She's absolutely right. And that's very good if you're a home builder. I don't by any stretch mean to imply that the builders have saturated the demand or in, I think a lot of investors are worried that they maybe even have oversaturated. Clearly, as Diana is pointing out, uh, that is not the case. They are ramping up their production, but there is still a lot more production that still needs to be made uh, in order to satisfy the significant pent-up demand that's out there. So um, I think this is a very healthy environment for the builders that have retooled. Which are those builders? You asked earlier. I would say the names that come most readily to my mind are D.R. Horton, which we upgraded yesterday. Uh, they are the largest builder in the country. They also happen to be very focused on the entry level and are probably one of the most efficient builders out there. I would say that you can also purchase NVR, KB Home, and Lennar as being good ways to tackle the or target the lower end of the market. All right, folks, got to leave it there. Diana Oleg, Stephen Kim, thanks so much. Good to see you both. Thanks. Coming up, from porkless pork to wingless wings, the fake meat, fake meat mania continues. 
with two more companies upping their game. We'll tell you who and whether it is a good strategy. Plus, Goldman Sachs is starting to look more like its peers. What the bank just did and what it says about where the industry is headed now. And this biotech stock gained 150% last year. The company developing a new way to treat some cancers. The CEO will join us live to talk about it when the exchange returns in two minutes. With the Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card, you can earn unlimited 2% cash rewards on purchases you want and purchases you need. That means you earn on what you want, like trying out that new workout class, and 2% cash rewards on what you need, like a foam roller for your sore muscles. That's the beauty of the Active Cash Credit Card. It's ready when you are with unlimited 2% cash rewards. The Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card. That's real life ready. Terms apply. Learn more at wellsfargo.com slash active cash. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Demand for energy is projected to continue rising in the future. To help keep up, Chevron is increasing their U.S. oil and gas production. And they're innovating to help do it responsibly across their operations, including their Gulf of Mexico facilities, which are some of the world's lowest carbon intensity operations, helping supply energy that's affordable, reliable, and ever cleaner. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com slash meeting demand. Welcome back to The Exchange. I'm Phil Lebeau with breaking news on Boeing. Take a look at shares of Boeing, which have been trading a little bit lower as the day has moved on. The company is going to be recommending to the Federal Aviation Administration that Boeing 737 pilots, all pilots from commercial airlines who fly the 737 MAX, that they undergo simulator training as part of any approved fix for the 737 MAX. This is a move that Boeing has resisted and has not wanted to make, but the company says it is planning to recommend that to the FAA when it makes final rules for the 737 MAX. The FAA out with a statement within the last couple of minutes saying it is following a thorough process, not a set timeline, to ensure that any design modifications to the 737 MAX are integrated with appropriate training and procedures. The significance of this, Tyler, is that this is going to be much costlier for airlines. And, you know, they're not going to bear the cost. It's going to go back to Boeing. And that's why, as they work out these settlements, we don't know what the settlements are going to be for 2020. But clearly, additional simulator training will be worked into those settlements in the future. And it's going to run into the billions of dollars for Boeing, isn't it, when all is said and done? Yeah. In terms of what they have to pay the airlines. Absolutely, Tyler. And, and that's the impact for, for investors that they're going to be focused on. For airlines, this is time-consuming and it's going to be costly. You know, Now, again, Boeing's going to bear those costs, but at the same time, if you're a 737 pilot, now you're saying, okay, now i got to go get into max simulator training at some point. All right. Phil LeBeau, thank you very much. Let's go to Sue Herrera for a CNBC News update. Hi, Sue. Hello, Ty. Hello, everyone. Here's what's happening at this hour. A new study was unable to definitively link the use of talcum powder with an increased risk for ovarian cancer. The National Institutes of Health analyzed four studies involving more than 250,000 women. The new study could impact thousands of legal claims against Johnson & Johnson over its talc products. France's government and its unions appear far apart after talks resumed over contested pension reforms. The government was hoping to soften union opposition after record-setting strikes hobbled the country's train network, making commuting miserable for Parisians. 
Venezuelan opposition leader Juan Guaido made his way into the legislative building following a standoff with security forces. He led lawmakers in singing the national anthem. He was initially blocked by dozens of National Guardsmen from entering. And marijuana sales are so strong in Illinois that several dispensary shops are temporarily closing due to a supply shortage. Illinois legalized the sale of recreational marijuana as of January 1st. People waiting in line for hours to purchase pot, spending nearly $11 million in the first five days of this new year. You are up to date. That's the news update. Ty, back to you. All right. Thank you very much, Sue. Well, vegetarians are going to have another reason to cheer Burger King. Uber is gearing up for liftoff with a major automaker, and SpaceX tries to appease stargazers. Plus, Finnish workers could soon see a three-day weekend. That is all coming up in today's Rapid Fire. All right, let's catch up on a few stories that should be on your radar. It is time for Rapid Fire. And here with their takes are Kate Rogers, Morgan Brennan, and Seema Modi. Welcome, ladies. Nice to have you here. First up, uh, beef, now pork. Impossible Foods has announced plans to launch meatless pork and sausage. Impossible Sausage. It just sounds funny. Will debut across more than 100 Burger King locations as part of its Impossible Croissandwich. This follows the success of the Impossible Whopper, which boosted uh, the company's third quarter sales to the highest level in four years. Shares of Burger King's parent company restaurant brands are up about 1%. Kate, uh, my sense is that this can help Burger King because Burger King, I'm not going to say they have been an also-ran-in-breakfast, but they're not... (laughs) Number one in breakfast. Well, so it's a great move for Burger King. The Impossible Partnership has done both brands well so far. Uh, The Impossible Sausage is coming uh, later this month at, you know, a little over 100 restaurants across the country. It's a good move for Burger King because breakfast is more and more important. Wendy's is doing a nationwide breakfast rollout uh, this year. That's obviously one of their biggest competitors. And Dunkin' Donuts and Tim Hortons both already have uh, have Beyond beyond Meat sausage sandwiches. Um, And, you know, whether or not consumers wind up sticking with these alternative meat products remains to be seen, but it's good to have the option. McDonald's didn't have an alt-meat burger this last quarter, and it hurt them on earnings because they're the biggest restaurant chain, and a lot of customers were looking and waiting for that. They're testing out a Beyond Meat uh, burger in Canada, but they don't have a nationwide option yet either. So it'll be interesting to see what happens across the restaurant space, but very yeah. buzzy announcement today. From yeah. CES, too, of all places. Yeah, well, yeah, really CES. Yes. I mean, yeah. what, what is the technology angle here uh, on this? Well, it's know. agritech, right? Yeah, I mean, I this is a hot area for investors. Yeah, um, you know, we for, just made a new word there. That's not, oh, oh, no, this is like, this is the VC yes. word, yes. agritech. Yeah. Just um, but, credit. You made it up. I think the pork piece of this is really fascinating. It's not just for, you know, Burger King or fast food or here in the U.S. This is also because this is a company that's expanding internationally. They say this is a big potential uh, product for China, right, where we've seen this huge spike in inflation because of pork prices, because everything that's happened with a, you know, Swine hog. Yeah. Flu in Africa. So, so yeah. I think it's even more than that. I think the other thing that's pretty fascinating, because the Impossible CEO was on uh, the mm-hmm. network earlier mm-hmm. in the day, is that doesn't seem to have plans to go public yet. Do mm-hmm. Thumbs up or thumbs down. Do we like these meatless burgers? At this point, I would say no, but I'm very willing to try out these new products. I've only had it once. I'm kind of in the no category. Well, my dad's a Burger King franchisee, Mm -hmm. so I am partial to the Impossible Whopper, and I'm going to go thumbs up with it. And I will tell you, 
But he has seen an increase in foot traffic yeah, because of for it. Sure. Absolutely. Okay, cool. I'm going to remain neutral as neutral. the restaurant's reporter. Is this a thing? <laughs> yeah, that's Sideways? neutral. That's, yeah. no, that's good. Um, you know, I've tried them. I think they taste good. I do enjoy regular traditional meat. So, you know, yeah. I would more likely stick with that. But oh, the taste is there. Let's uh, leave the burgers and move to uh, Hyundai <laughs> and Uber. Uh, they're teaming up to develop a line of flying taxis, unveiling a full-scale model. Where else? At CES, right after they've had an impossible burger or sausage <laughs> or whatever. The personal air vehicle, PAV, expected to carry up to four passengers on trips of up to 60 miles, travel at altitudes between one and 2,000 feet. Sure it will. Uber Elevate is expected to begin demo flights this year, while Uber says it plans to officially launch the service in 2023. Would you get on one of these things? 100% I would. But you're also asking the space reporter. I know. That's why I ask you. um, This is really fascinating. 2023. One of the questions now is going to be what becomes more mainstream first, air taxis or autonomous vehicles? I think that's like a legit question to be asking with a company like Uber. Also, they have a lot of partnerships, Hyundai, but also Boeing, Textron, Embraer. There, it's going to be an interesting business model. See how it shakes out. Uh, High-flying taxis, they sound great, Tyler. I loved how our colleague John Ford really tried to push the head of aviation at Uber on costs and how much this is financially going to impact Uber's outlook because... From the street's point of view, the big concern for Uber has been, has it been, has it spread itself too thin with international food delivery, Grab versus Lyft, which is more of a streamlined business focused primarily on ride hailing in North America. So I think that's the big concern uh, is this is a great opportunity and innovative to say the least, but at the same time, how much does it cost? We have to move on to another space oriented Mm -hmm. uh, topic here. SpaceX just launched more than 60 satellites into space, becoming the world's largest commercial satellite operator. The company's Starlink fleet now stands at 180 satellites with plans to launch tens of thousands more. But astronomers warn that that could have a potentially devastating side effect. The sea of bright satellites could obscure views of the stars. They had a launch last night, right, Morgan? They sure did. It was a successful launch. SpaceX is now the largest, the world's largest uh, commercial operator of satellites. I mean, that really says something. Tens of thousands of satellites over the next couple of years. Internet service, not only to the U.S., to the globe. Potential new big revenue stream for the company. Just to put this in perspective, there's only about 2,000 satellites in total around the globe. So this is why you have astronomers getting concerned about, you know, photobombing and what this is going to do to the stars. I guess they're too reflective. Yeah, right. Yeah, so exactly. So one of the satellites that was actually on this mission last night has a uh, coating, an experimental Mm -hmm. coating to try and make it less reflective. We'll see if it works. In terms of internet broadband, though, they have to get up to 400 in orbit to provide minimal coverage and then 600 or 800 to provide moderate coverage. So 60 sounds great, but there's a lot of work to be done in order to create this constellation of satellites that Elon Musk is really trying to do with space. But just to put this in perspective, they're looking to do 20 of these launches, 60 satellites apiece before the end of just this year. They're moving very fast with us. And who's very jealous of this? China. I mean, they've got two different startups within China trying to do the same exact thing. So then you have the space race and the real estate. That's the big question for me. We can't really analyze or assess the real estate available in space, but does it become too crowded at some point? Yeah. That is the big question. Moving on to the last uh, and perhaps most interesting question. Finland recently swore in the world's youngest sitting prime minister, and she's got big plans for an old tradition. She has proposed shifting the country to a four-day work week consisting of six-hour days. 
that's a lot less work. Saying workers deserve more time to spend on hobbies and with loved ones. So far, there's been no traction for her plan just yet. Remember, Microsoft Japan recently found a trial four-day work week boosted productivity, or so said the people there, by 40%. Well, we all laughed about that Microsoft experiment because if CNBC said we're going to give you a four-day work week, wouldn't we all like really, really, really work hard during the four days yeah. and boost our productivity by even more so you have this great data to show that it really does work and hopefully they make it permanent. My question about this is, are the workers going to be paid less? Like, who's actually going to sign on for this? It doesn't, it seems great in theory to have more time with your family, more time on hobbies. I'm sure productivity would be there and people would be happier. But like, what does this actually look like for the employer? I can see some industries where it would work easily. Ours, it would be difficult because the business week is five days and we'd have to have all kinds of scheduling. Not that Lacey is, uh, O'Toole is not able to do all that scheduling, (laughs) but, uh, but it would be a challenge. I can't help but think that a potential upside to this is more diversity in the workplace. Um, if you create more flexibility, maybe at a time where something like ESG investing is, you know, gaining traction, maybe you create an, an opportunity, you know, an opportunity for employees uh, towards more gender parity and towards more diversity in general. And it's worth noting this too, I think, yeah. by the way. Yeah, and it's working in Sweden yeah. at this point. Um, I would just point out that in a tweet, the Finnish government did walk back these expectations that the new prime minister is expecting to roll out this four-day week. So we'll have to see if this policy actually goes through. But she, in the foreign policy circles, is a leader to watch. Santa Marin, the world's youngest head of state at the age of 34. And three of her coalition leaders are also younger than 35. So you got a very young uh, cabinet. That's not surprising. It's a millennial that suggested this. I worked for Early in my career, I worked for a company that did go to a four-day work week in the summer so that people could get away mm-hmm. early. But it was not a shorter day. It was a four 10-hour days as, a, as uh, opposed exactly. to five eight-hour days. But there's too much to do. And it was know. a grind. I mean, it, 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 it was a grind. But, but at any rate, thanks very, very much, guys. Appreciate it. Thank you. All right. Oil prices falling today, but climbing nearly 3% since the killing of Iran's major general. Up next, an energy exec weighs in on the ongoing tensions and why prices haven't skyrocketed as a result. The exchange will be right back. Oil prices actually falling today despite ongoing tensions with Iran, and crude has climbed only 2.5% since the killing of that country's most fearsome general. For more on this and why the industry appears to be shrugging off geopolitics, at least for now, let's head to the Goldman Sachs Energy Conference, where Brian Sullivan is joined by one of the big players in energy. Hi, Brian. Hey, Tyler, thank you very much. Yeah, I mean, this this next guest, Andy Hendricks, President and CEO of Patterson UTI, I think is the most interesting guest at the conference, with all due respect to every other guest, for one reason. You guys make the big drilling rigs that are the beginning of the cycle. You really know what's going to happen, because if I want to drill a rig, I got to lease one of your big rigs that drills the hole and then moves over to the next one. How are you seeing demand right now? Well, you know, throughout 2019, and as, as you stated, we, you know, we are a proxy for, uh, for what happens in drilling because of the rigs that we operate. And we do post a number of rigs that we're operating in North America every day on our website. But throughout 2019, with the price of oil coming down, we've seen the rig count come down. But as we said on our last earnings call, we expect to put up a handful of rigs at the end of Q4 and early Q1. And as people have noticed, investors who've gone to our website, they've seen that our rig counts actually moved up from what looks like a bottom in December. Yeah. So my good friend and overall smart guy, Tyler Matheson, had a great question leading in, which is why isn't oil higher? You look at what happened on Friday. Okay, you got OPEC tightening a month ago. You have the assassination or the killing, however you want to call it, of Soleimani. 
and yet we're only up, what, 2.5% from Friday's open. What's going on? Yeah, if you look at the risk premium and WTI and where it trades today, there's, you know, and it's come down a little bit today, there's probably only a dollar left in the risk premium. It was trading at about $61 before what happened in the last few days. You know, it's really a testament to uh, production and efficiencies in U.S. and how much Is oil we're producing. Is it a testament to oversupply? I wouldn't say oversupply because you've seen oil actually move up. I think most of the budgets of our customers, the EMPs across North America, they were looking at $55 oil throughout 2019. We've been trading at 61. You know, that's a healthy move from our standpoint. You think prices will stay above 60? I think they will. I think if you look at the fundamentals, especially with the rig count coming down so much in 2019, it's eventually going to have an effect on production. It's not right away. You know, I hear a lot of pundits on TV talking about, well, the rig count came down, but oil prices or production hasn't moved yet. But you got to remember what we do in today's environment. You know, we're going to drill a number of wells on a pad, maybe six to eight wells together. Then we're going to come in with a fracking operation and do hydraulic fracturing. You know, it's six months before those wells are on production. So there's about a six-month lag between what happens with the rig count and then what happens with production in the well, U.S. Well, you're in this weird spot then because you want prices to go up because then your customers have more money to spend with you. But at the same time, if prices go up, then there's going to be more drilling activity, which might send prices back down. It could. You know, we want a healthy oil price. Which is what? You know, I think anything above $55 a barrel is healthy. We're operating 125 drilling rigs today. Uh, we were operating more early in 2019, but oil prices were higher. Now oil prices have gone back up, and we'll see what happens. And it's not just the EMPs that the typical investor sees on their screen, you know, the publicly traded. Yep. There are a number of other oil companies out there, too. And it's actually the number of operators that are actually drilling with one rig can expand when oil prices move up. The, the, maybe the hottest play in oil right now is New Mexico. You guys have rigs in New Mexico? We do. We're across the Permian, West Texas, well, New a Mexico. Lot of, a lot of drilling in New Mexico is on federal lands. Yes. And there are some political candidates that would like to ban fracking or drilling or anything on federal lands. You know, an interesting report when when that came out early in September was issued by J.P. Morgan and one of their economists uh, early in September. And this is not an energy economist. This was a generalist per se. And it was a recognition that 40 percent of the energy that we use in the United States today comes from wells that are hydraulically fracked. And, of course, we know this has been around a long time. It's been proven to be a safe operation. But if you take out 40 percent of the energy that's used by the U.S., that's going to create other issues in the U.S. with regards to the economy. So I think, uh, you know, there needs to be careful consideration yeah. before something like that comes into play. All right, Andy Hendricks, the president and CEO of Patterson UTI. I've been on your rigs. We appreciate We look at your rig count. And, and I might have been one of those pundits that you – or at least it was Tyler Matheson. I'm going to blame it on, blame Tyler, it on Tyler, who I called a smart guy. You did. Which is very nice because you are. God love you, are, you, man. Tyler. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks so All much, right. Bri. Good. And thank you uh, to our guest as well. All right. Joining the exchange tomorrow will be the Energy Secretary, Dan Brulette. Uh, don't want to miss that. That is at 1 p.m. Uh, tomorrow, Dan Brulette, Energy Secretary. And Goldman Sachs reorganizing its business to look more like a retail bank in an effort to win over investors. We'll tell you what it's doing next. Goldman Sachs announcing it is reorganizing its businesses, moving away from the sort of opaque labels it used until today. It is the latest move by CEO David Solomon to transition Goldman from a trading house into a more consumer-facing bank with digital aspirations. And joining us now to take a closer look at the changes at Goldman Sachs is CNBC.com banking reporter Hugh Son. Hugh, welcome. Good to see Thanks you. Thanks for having me, Tyler. Uh, 
It used to be that Goldman was just different. It felt different. Yeah. It described things differently. It was a New York white shoe investment bank, yeah. but it was different than its competitors. Now it's more like them. It used to be different was being good, but yeah. you know, five years of uh, stock underperformance versus the likes of J.P. Morgan, B of A, will want you to be a little bit more like those guys. And so they have obviously gotten more into consumer-facing products. The Apple credit card is one thing. Uh, there's another business called Marcus, which is an interest-bearing save, interest savings right. account. Uh, and I guess they're bundling these consumer products together, yeah. or what? It's finally time, you know, where I guess they've reached prime time, they've reached scale enough, where they want to put them together and call it Consumer uh, Wealth Management uh, Division, right, which is this, this new business that they're, they're, they're taking out. You know, the flip side is it's a tiny business still. And so you actually now have a little more transparency into how tiny it is and to how relatively high the costs are as they're bootstrapping these businesses, investing tons and tons of money into these businesses. But I think ultimately what you'll see is over the next coming years, as CEO David Solomon lays the groundwork for what what he hopes to be a recovery in in the share price, is that you're going to see massive growth in these new consumer businesses which will give investors a story at least to, to hone in on, whereas a lot of the other businesses are very mature and not growing. So I don't want to get, get Goldman angry with me by saying they're not different anymore. They are still different, as you point out. This yeah. consumer part of their business is still very small. They're relatively lopsided when you look at the rest of the street. And, but, but is there a day coming where I'm going to see on my corner either a Goldman Sachs um, consumer bank with Goldman Sachs Asset Management in it, or something called yeah. Marcus, that is a, a brand that they might um, cultivate. Now, Tyler, I've asked them about whether or not they're going to do bricks and mortar, and at, so far, it's only digital. And mm-hmm. digital is really where you can scale up without a lot of the costs that right. the, the other guys have. You never say never in this business. And in the next crisis, if something were to make itself uh, you know, available for sale, who knows? But for now, no bricks and mortar with Goldman. All right, Hugh, thanks very much. Appreciate it. Always good to have you here. For more on Goldman's transformation, you can read Hugh's article on CNBC.com. Now, check out this chart. This biotech has climbed more than 150% in 2019, and we're going to talk to the company's chairman about what's driving those gains and what's on deck for 2020. That's next. Biotech was on fire in 2019, and one of the leaders in that sector was Novocure, up a whopping 152% last year. The company outperformed the market because of positive results for its innovative cancer therapy called tumor-treating fields. Here to discuss the latest in biotech and twists on it is Bill Doyle, the executive chairman of Novocure, and CNBC's Meg Terrell is here as well. Welcome to both of you. What is this treating fields? Is it, is it electricity that targets the tumor or what? So Novacure has a new proprietary platform to treat some of the most difficult forms of cancer. When you think about cancer therapies, you think about surgery, radiation, and pharmacological therapies. We have a fourth method that targets the electrical properties of proteins rather than their chemical properties. Um, Put simply, uh, forces move objects. When we think of forces, you know, we think of physical pushing Uh, But forces can also be delivered at a distance through fields. We know gravity. That's the force between masses. We know magnetism, the force between an iron bar and a a magnet. Electric fields are analogous, but electric fields move uh, uh, particles or objects with charges. Many of our proteins have very strong charges. 
including um, much of the machinery involved in cell division. And we apply fields in order to disrupt that cell division of cancer cells. Highly, highly targeted, I, I presume, to, to be able to do that. And as you say, uh, you've targeted some of the most intractable forms of cancer, like glioblastoma, pancreatic cancer, uh, metastatic uh, lung cancer, and so forth. Why is this uh, approach particularly promising in those as I said, very intractable cancer. So first of all, uh, the same mechanism works on all cancer cell types. So we've tested it in over 20 because it's, such, uh, it's so effective on the basic machinery mm-hmm. of cell division. And Tyler, as you said, we're able to target it so we can focus on the cancer cells and not harm the uh, uh, healthy dividing cells. Um, we've chosen to go after these most difficult to treat uh, solid tumors uh, in, in many respects, because we can, uh, while, while others cannot. This doesn't seem like it's an easy thing necessarily to administer as a patient to wear. You wear it for 18 hours a day. Did I read that? How, how easy is it for patients to go through this? Yeah, so this is the, what in many respects is counterintuitive, but we've published now in JAMA uh, Oncology that the quality of life of brain cancer patients is actually higher using the device than not. And and I'll tell you why. So first of all, we apply the fields using a device. It's one of the things that um, makes our company a little bit unusual. Our therapy works like a drug, but it's administered using a a device. And because we can target, we see no systemic toxicity. So in these other therapies that I've mentioned, for the most part, there are all of these other side effects that we're familiar with uh, when we we think about cancer. And there's always this trade-off between therapy and and, and, uh, and the side effects. With tumor-treating fields, yes, the patient does have to apply uh, uh, what we call transducer arrays. They're external. They stick to the skin in the region of the cancer. They have to carry uh, a small box to power the transducers. But for most patients, that's much better than the progression of the cancer itself. Of course. I mean, it's a trade-off for, for every kind of therapy. I want to ask you also about the next big thing you have coming up, of course, which is the J.P. Morgan Healthcare Conference starting next week. Your company is scheduled to present Monday morning, which is a pretty key time slot. Tell us both as somebody from a company and also as an investor in the healthcare space, how big of a deal is next week, the J.P. Morgan Conference? Well, so I've been involved in this uh, space for a long time. Uh, this, is, this is going to be my third decade with Novacure. Before Novacure, I worked at J&J, so I was, uh, was going to the conference, in fact, before it was the J.P. Morgan conference. I think it's a very important conference. This is really the one time when the entire healthcare, uh, the financial ecosystem comes together. It's become quite a big uh, event, but we're delighted to be able to speak in, uh, in one of the prime slots. On, uh, Just on to Monday tie morning. up one, one loose end, uh, is this uh, tumor treating fields technology in the market today, or is it awaiting approval? Where does it stand? Yeah, so Tyler, this is, I think, one of the most important things for investors. And I think um, it's one of the things that became appreciated uh, about our company in 2019 that was part of the, you know, responsible for the, uh, the performance we saw in the, in the stock. Mm-hmm. So first of all, it is approved in the U.S., Europe, and Japan for the treatment of glioblastoma. This is the deadly brain cancer. Brain cancer. Yep. Um, and we have demonstrated in a phase three trial the best results ever uh, shown for that cancer. All right. um, we are generating revenue, positive cash flow, 
and for the first time profitability in 2019 with that base business. Wonderful. And that base business is now paying for our late stage program that you mentioned in pancreatic cancer, yeah. ovarian cancer, et cetera. We have to, we have to leave it there. Last bill, we'll follow you at uh, the J.P. Morgan uh, conference where I know you'll be as well. We will. All right. Thanks very much. Thanks for having me. That- You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. With the Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card, you can earn unlimited 2% cash rewards on purchases you want and purchases you need. That means you earn on what you want, like trying out that new workout class, and 2% cash rewards on what you need, like a foam roller for your sore muscles. That's the beauty of the Active Cash Credit Card. It's ready when you are, with unlimited 2% cash rewards. The Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card. That's real life ready. Terms apply. Learn more at wellsfargo.com slash active cash.